Hello and welcome back, listener. How are you doing? You are obviously listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast season three. We're back for another incredible episode, and this is going to be one that I think you're going to really enjoy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Hello, I'm Michael. I am the other half of Wes. So we're back in the studio. We're in London, and thank you for downloading us again. I'm hoping by now we're on season three. You should be subscribed, please. But if you're not, please make sure you do. If you're new here, though, hello and welcome. We are going to be talking about surrogacy and pregnancy and egg donation. So as a trigger warning, we do talk about loss throughout this particular episode. Season three has been fun so far, and we're excited to be back recording this just for you. We even have a sponsor, Michael. Tell us more about them. Yes, a brand new sponsor for season three. We are working with Manchester Fertility, the UK's leading specialist offering IUI, ICSI and IVF treatment awarded Best Fertility Clinic in the northwest of England, along with earning a Patient Care Excellent Award. So today we're talking to Debbie Evans, who is My Surrogacy Journey's clinical lead, and Leanne Drool, who is My Surrogacy Journey's surrogate and known egg donor lead. Hello, ladies. How are you doing? We're all good, thanks. Thank you. So... On this episode, Debbie, you're going to help provide us with some super interesting insights to egg donation and the criteria around it, the clinical procedures and what you need to consider when becoming an egg donor and also looking at the risks of egg donation. And Leanne, you're going to talk to us about your experiences of being an egg donor yourself and how you manage our known egg donor program. Amazing. So we've got two very talented ladies on the podcast today. We have lots of experience, so we should be able to give you a real general overview about what you can expect if you are looking to donate eggs, whether it's anonymously or whether it's known. Let's allow you to both give us an intro. Debbie, well, let's start with you. So I'm Debbie Evans. I'm the clinical lead for my surrogacy journey. And my role within the agency is to speak with and have a clinical consultation with our intended parents, our surrogates and our known egg donors. So it's really important that I have good insight into what's required when you get to clinic level so that we make sure that you're fit for the journey ahead. I've actually been um, within the fertility sector for 26 years now. Wow, wow. <laughs> Majority at clinic level and at senior management level. So I've been there, seen it and done it and been part of lots of the regulations within fertility itself. I've been a big part of the HFEA reforms. I work with some of our medical partnerships such as the British Fertility Society. So a good all-round experience that, that I've brought to MSJ. She has indeed. So you're in very safe hands when you get on a call with Debbie. Yes. Leanne, give us a little bit of overview of yourself and your background. So I'm the surrogate and known egg donor lead for MSJ, which entails supporting all surrogates and known egg donors from inquiry stage right through the journey and post-treatment. And you've had some personal experience through donation yourself, haven't you? So I've been an anonymous donor six times Wow! Um, since my children were born 14 years ago. What an amazing thing to do. I mean, we hear it all the time of these people that we come into contact with, uh-huh. surrogates and non-donors or donors generally, and, yeah. and the amazing gift that they give to people to help them either complete their family, start their family. There's so many amazing people out there who just want to help people. Liam, what was the prompt for you to become a donor? Believe it or not, I heard a radio advert on the way to work. Oh, really? Crying out for egg donors. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know it was such a thing. And somebody said to me once, mm. you'll never understand love like you love your children. And I just sort of sat there for a minute and thought, I can't ever imagine not having my own children or somebody telling me I can't have my own children. Uh-huh. So I, having heard the radio advert, I just gave them a call and it went from there, really. Amazing. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Debbie, this is really for you. We're seeing donation become more common and be more front and centre, especially with surrogacy on the rise. Talk to us, if you can, about how you've seen the popularity of egg donation develop, especially over the last 10 years. So we know in general that people are leaving their fertility later. Mm -hmm. So in the general fertility sector, The clinics are seeing more and more women over the age of 35 and over the age of 40 and they don't realise how quick their ovarian reserve runs out. So women that hit around about the age of 35, their ovarian reserve starts to diminish 
And so many people are just clueless on those facts. They're not taught it at an earlier level. We are in the schools now. We are educating. We are much better at getting that information across. So people are coming to us. But in general... Um, women are, and couples are leaving it until much later in life. So by the time they hit the fertility clinic, they've already been trying for perhaps two or three years mm-hmm. or in the same-sex community, they already know that that's the journey that they need to go on. And so they get to the fertility clinics and they realise they have no ovarian reserve and they didn't need to think about egg donation. So it is on the rise. It's a much more safer, proactive um, experience now with egg donation in the fertility sector. The lifting of donor anonymity back in 2005 did have a huge impact and we're now hitting the children that were born as a result of that this year, 2023. And so that really impacted on how many donors were coming forward. As in reduced the number. Yep, absolutely reduced. Because of that donor anonymity, people... They were scared. They were worried that people, that children born as a result of their donation were going to be knocking on the door at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And as much as, you know, in the fertility clinics at the time... We were very proactive in in how we were going to support them. We had a big, clear plan. But we know that children, adults born as a result of those donations from those earlier days, 2005, etc., are going to be knocking on the doors, perhaps yeah. wanting information. And are we completely prepared? There's some areas of concern around what, what, what information we're going to be giving those patients and how much access they can have. Mm-hmm. But in the last 10 years, I would say that that has started to increase again in both egg and sperm donors. We're now having people come through the clinics from an altruistic point of view as much as an egg sharing point of view. So to look at the two things, egg sharing is very popular through fertility clinics. So those are donors that need fertility treatment and perhaps uh, finance could be a big issue. So they have an option to egg share. And that means that they go through the IVF process and they share half of those eggs with an anonymous recipient. Okay. So that's on the increase because it's making it affordable for yeah. those patients that might not have had. And in general, those um, couples that come through to us are either in same-sex relationships or they've got a sperm factor issue. So they're ideal donors and they have got a good ovarian reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it is increasing and we have got more access. But because people do generally leave it till they're a bit older, we do need more donors. So we need to think about how we're going to recruit donors moving forward into the future. The other thing to discuss is the rise of egg banks. So banks now in the UK are much more accessible. Um, there are several now and lots of clinics with the invention of vitrification are able to freeze in a much more effective way. Um, We always worried about our slow freezing techniques, you know, 10 years ago, because the outcomes were quite poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And now with vitrification, we're very confident that you're going to get a 95 to 97% um, success rate on the freezing and thawing of those eggs. Okay, that's interesting, because I always assumed that the thawing of eggs was still very fragile versus sperm because of the one cell issue. That's improved now with latest techniques. So much more improved. And okay. we've learned from our, particularly our Spanish colleagues, because they've done really huge numbers and we're, we're learning their techniques. And so because of the vitrification techniques, we're really confident with the programmes that we have. Now, in the UK, we still need to create the numbers so that we can confidently say that we've got X amount of success. And until we really do get those numbers through the door, because we're still in its infancy in the UK, um, but across the board, we know, discussing with our colleagues around the country, that the techniques have really improved and that we're getting good success rates. What type of people do you see that are coming through that need donation? Because I think there's the perception that, you know, typically it's it's a same-sex couple or a single gay man that, that needs that. But I know that, that that's very different, but I think the listener might naturally assume that it is. Tell us about the type of people that need eggs and why they need eggs. So um, there are people that are born without ovaries so that they know from a very early age that that's going to need be their route for them. So they're very clear cut. They, you know, know from early on and and hopefully they've been prepared for that. And so by the time they come to the fertility clinics, they have armed with knowledge and they have good understanding on what they need to do. 
but I alluded to the older patients. They've been on quite a rocky road of a journey and by the time a heterosexual couple generally comes into needing egg donation and then perhaps surrogacy, those patients have been on a much rockier road. So they've already tried their own fertility, they've perhaps had IUI and IVF and all sorts of um, treatment through the fertility clinic and then there comes a point where their AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone, that's what determines our stock of eggs has really diminished and that can often come as a massive shock to our patients and to then having to consider or being accepting of um, receiving a donor egg is quite a tough one. Mm. So we need to be really prepared at clinic level to support patients through that. So lots of counselling and support and, you know, we do always say it's nature versus nurture and, you know, when a woman gets to carry that child, then the nurturing takes over from the actual physical nature. But it's a tough one and not everyone can go down the egg donation route. And Debbie, tell us about oncology because that plays a big part in donation as well, doesn't it? Yep. So um, obviously patients that need to have cancer treatments, hopefully they've got good oncologists that refer them straight through to the reproductive side. And from a clinic perspective, we need to be proactive very quickly. So you might get a call to say, we've got this patient on a Friday evening and on Monday they're in, they've had their consultation well, and they're ready quick. to start their treatment. Mm. Yeah, And we can start at any time of the cycle. So the procedures that we use can mean that we don't have to wait for a period to start because the longer okay. you leave things, the more chance that you're, you're putting them at higher risk of their cancer evolving, etc. Yeah. And would that be a different type of egg retrieval process versus or is no. it exactly the exactly same? Exactly the same. It's just you're not cycle dependent. You right. just get on with it and you just do it. And obviously you're just collecting as much. And it may well be that you have time to do two cycles. We do geostims where we can do two lots of cycles within a frame. So you can um, stimulate within the luteal phase, which is the second phase of the reproductive cycle, um, rather than just the follicular phase, which is where the egg normally grows. So you can do two lots. You give a tiny little break of two or three days and then you do again with stimulation to try and recruit and get as many eggs as possible before they need to think about their oncology treatment. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah there's, And I think it's it's kind of really helping the listener understand the, the breadth of the type of people that need to use donor eggs. It's, I think it's a lot more than I ever anticipated. And I certainly speak to a lot more people with a really diverse range of, you know, understanding of why they need donor eggs. Let's hope that the listener that is listening right now wants to become a donor. I'm going to come to you in a second, Leanne. What is the criteria from a clinic perspective, firstly, to become a donor? Okay, so in general, you need to be under the age of 35. Unless you were doing a known donor route, then that will be dependent on your general health and your AMH, your ovarian reserve, to make sure that you have got eggs to um, donate. But in general, you need to be under the age of 35. Your BMI needs to be under 35. That's really key because you do need to have an element of a sedation process so you need to be safe. First rule of medicine is to do no harm. So we do not do not want to put you in an unsafe environment. So your weight needs to be down or your BMI needs to be under 35. You need to have a normal AMH. And that means in that we use a Gen 2 assay across the UK, um, which means it needs to be between 6 and 20. So that's a normal range so that we know we've got a good chance of retrieving eggs. You need to be a non-smoker. That's really important that you do not smoke and lots of clinics will actually do a physical test to see if there's nicotine traces. Oh, wow. Okay. You need to have two ovaries. That's really key to get the best chance. And I'm not saying that we won't um, see you if you've only got one ovary. Perhaps you've had a, a cyst or something, you ended up losing an ovary. But it's very key that that's transparent at the very beginning. You can't be taking recreational drugs. That's very, very important. Um, you know, people say, well, I have the odd bit of occasionally at a weekend how's that going to affect it will affect so we make sure that you don't and then really important is that you'd have no genetic or inheritable conditions that could be passed on and we do that by testing you um, through a routine carrier type but we can also do extended carrier typing nowadays which is becoming much much more popular within clinics and most donors going through a licensed clinic route will have carrier genetic testing carried out which is the extended screening 
which is what we offer as standard to all of our donors at My Surrogacy Journey. And so it should be perfect. It is. <laughs> Debbie, what about mental health? People always talk about, you know, mental health, whether it's uh, something that runs through the family or whether it's prevalent in the particular donor. How does that impact donation? Well, of course it does, because first rule of medicine, do no harm. We do not want to exacerbate any mental health condition or a physical condition. So we do rule those out. So when we ask, have you got any genetic or inheritable conditions? The next question on will be, do you have any mental health disorders within your family? So, you know, we're talking about things such as schizophrenia, etc. That that is an inheritable or dominated as an inheritable condition and can be transferred on. But if it's a, a depression we would talk further to you around what that depression was. Was it a postnatal depression? Is it something that was perhaps work-related, whatever it was, and that's you were on antidepressants and now you're off those antidepressants and you've not had a further bout. So the clinical lead needs to be able to discuss that with those persons, drill down into what that mental health episode meant and is there any potential for risk in the future? Mm-hmm. So we need we do need to ask those questions. But it's it's hard to define mental health because people can have episodes for all sorts of reasons in their and that's life. That's totally fine. And we're not going to rule you no, out because no of that. So so we do need to just the clinical person needs to drill down and find out what that episode was. And what what's the kind of stance on uh, medication? Does that impact? Yes, it can. So depending on the medication that you're on, with egg donation, we might not say that you need to come off of your drugs. We need to understand what the drugs are. And I'm not going to list them all here because there's too many. Um, But the clinical person needs to ascertain what those drugs are. Is there any potential harm to the egg? It's different if you're a surrogate and you're carrying a pregnancy, then some of those drugs could be harmful in a pregnancy. But in general, in egg donation, some of the antidepressants you can continue to take. And that isn't an issue, isn't okay, a problem. Okay, interesting. Over to you, Michael. I've just got a, a random one that's just come into my head, so I'm going to put you on the spot now. I'm sorry. That's okay. Is it true that if you're adopted, you can't donate your eggs? So, again, it's <laughs> yes, yes, in essence, because we do not have your full genetic history. Okay. And that's really important because the last thing we want to do is pass on an inheritable condition. Okay. So, some, we have had... In clinics in the past that I've worked in, we have had um, an adopted person that had their full medical history. Okay, so, then so that, that was, was fine. So that was absolutely fine. Cool. Um, so you need to talk with these people when they come through. And if they have got a full medical history that's correct, then you can be considered. But what if you don't know, you can't be. What happens if the donor is adopted and wants to be a known donor? Again, that would be something that you'd have to discuss with the intended parents or the recipient, but that's where CGT comes in. And perhaps that's, you know, the fact that we have access to that these days, yep. it can rule out all sorts of things. The extended so, screening. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's but, much more helpful. But I absolutely think it's about all parties knowing the risks associated yep. with it. And if you don't know the full genetic history of that, that person because they're adopted, you can choose to either say, I accept that risk and no. Well, you can make that decision. You can make that decision. Based on the facts that you've been presented, can't yeah. you? So we talk about informed consent from a medical legal perspective in everything that we do within medicine and particularly within uh, the world of fertility. And it it's around the correct information at the correct time so that you can make an informed decision about your treatment pathway. Mm-hmm. It's one of our guiding principles at My Surrogacy Journey is about knowledge and being able to understand what the impact that has on the decision you make. Totally, totally agree. So, Leanne, tell us a little bit, please, before we come on to your journey in a bit more detail. What is known donation? And then, then for all of us, why do we think that we're seeing more and more people want a known donor? So let's, let's unpack the first question. What is known donation? Known donations where you know your recipients from day one. So they get to know you, you get to know them, and you build up a friendship relationship, really. How deep that is, is, is completely between all of you. But um, it's knowing your recipients or who you're going to help from day one, where that of anonymous route is you don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. And are you, and, and this is something that you do for us at My Surrogacy Journey. So when when we have a known donor and we have intended parents that, that are seeking out that friendship to build, that they then take that donor to the clinic, what do donors often say to you when they have made the decision to become known rather than anonymous? Why are they choosing that option? I think it's curiosity, a lot of it. 
um, I think it's just nice to see that it's worked yeah. and, and who you're helping. And I think the anonymous route is very hard to, you're not, you don't have that relationship with the people that are emotionally involved in the journey. Uh-huh. Um, whereas the known donation, you know, they are emotionally involved. You get to share that adrenaline in a sense of, mm-hmm. of going through the journey together. Um, and I think that is what is driving more known egg donors. It's understanding who you've helped. And, and like Debbie said, you know, potentially there are knocks on the door later on. And I don't think for a donor for one minute, it's anything to do with the child born from donation, really. It's more having that relationship and understanding who you've helped and what that's meant to them. Yeah. And, and I guess it's it's knowing as early as you can what that donation has has created and the curiosity i think i totally understand you know the when you get that call at the end of the year when you've when you have donated and the clinic's told you there have been this many live births there's always something there going oh i'd love to be really nice to see or what's going on and whereas the known donors obviously it's being able to share the journey with them as well yeah mm-hmm. i think with anonymous when i did mine you, you only have this imagination of yeah. who these people are that you're helping um and you feel not so much on your own there's huge amounts of support but the people that are supporting you aren't necessarily emotionally involved with it mm-hmm. whereas having that relationship with with the recipients it's something you can share together going through and you see what that means to them and it makes you understand even more why you're doing it mm-hmm. i know we've got quite a few sets of ips with my suggestion that i've used non donation and, and a lot of them it's really lovely to see because they've used it in the truest sense that they've built a proper relationship they're connected as a team they've played a real part in the start of their journey of embryo creation and they are there then to once they do have a child for the child to be able to build a relationship now obviously that's at appropriate times and when everyone's you know happy for that to happen but i do think you know as a same sex couple having that donor there to be able to help tell your story is a really important part of the kind of the understanding for your child or your children. I think that plays a really massive part. And I think anonymous or non-anonymous donation, you just don't get that dynamic where I think it's a really lovely dynamic that it's there if you want it. And it's, it's all the, you know, the timings when, when they suit. But for me, and I know for a lot of RIPs, that's a really preferred route. I think more people would choose known donation if there was more donors available and, and, and it was quicker. It. Yeah, I think I think f- from my point of view, a lot of, and Leanne, I don't know if you agree, but a lot of the intended parents that we work with, they would absolutely choose known donor, but it's not quick enough for them. And and known donation typically takes longer because you've got to build a relationship. It's not, it's not choosing a donor and, and waiting for that donor and there's no the anonymity of it. That's different, but whereas non-donation, you do have to put the energy and you do have to put the effort in and you do have to take the time to be matched with someone because the relationship is important. And it's building that trust up, I think, for recipients to understand that there's no threat there from the donor. Mm. It's it's understanding that they're not there to become on or parent or yeah. anything of or that Or be, be involved in the or child's life if Actually, no one... Actually, a donor doesn't want that. No. Um, it, it's more, like you say, for telling the story. And being yeah. able to be there for the child to understand how they've come into the world. And I think, like, from our point of view, having have two children together, one was an anonymous donor and one was a known donor, I found it helpful knowing the origin as early as possible so we can have those conversations with our kids as early as possible. Whereas with Tallulah, that conversation will be delayed. Yeah. Whereas with Duke, when he was poorly, we could try and get to the bottom of some of his allergies and issues because we could just call our known donor. I think as a recipient, the known donation benefits are all. So there's less things to unpack with your child because you can have the conversation much quicker. But if you go back to the episode in season two with the CAFCAS officer, one of the things that you know comes across really prominently in that particular episode was about the welfare of the child and the, the child being able to understand their genetic origins. And I think don- known donation manages that part Much of the quicker. process really well. Yeah. And I think that's why Donor Conception Network also talk quite positively about traditional surrogacy, because a lot of those conversations for the welfare of the child can be had quite early on. Surrogate 
is donor and surrogate. And then there's the Intelli parents piece. Anyway, we digress. Yeah, <laughs> let's not go off on a tangent, but all, all really <laughs> valuable. Leanne, let's, let's talk about your particular journey. First of all, what motivated you? And I know you've kind of given us a bit of an insight into that, but then also tell us about the journeys. You know, how many times have you donated and what, what, how did you manage that? My employment history, believe it or not, had a big impact. Having worked most of my life as a funeral director, it made me value life um, and realise, you know, that, there are people out there struggling, especially when I heard the radio advert that they were crying out for donors. My particular choice of an anonymous route, I felt actually wasn't a choice because I didn't know there was another route. Sure. Um, would you have done, curiously, would you have absolutely. done? Absolutely. You would. Would you so, have preferred that? Would you have preferred to have done known? I think the first one, I didn't have anything to compare it to. Sure. So I have donated six times to six different sets of intended parents. So the first one, I didn't really have much to compare it to. But when I started the second one, more things started to come into my head as I was going through the journey of what are these people like? What do they know of me? Um, Do they know I'm going for a scan today? Do they know I'm due in for egg collection tomorrow? All those sorts of things. So absolutely, I would have done a known donation. And it was more, again, to share the journey of those emotionally involved. The adrenaline that I had going through my cycles, I felt I couldn't have that to share with anybody because mm-hmm. everybody that was supporting me wasn't necessarily involved with it as such. Tell us about, Leanne, when you were matched then to recipients. What was that process like and, and how did that make you feel? So after I'd gone through all the clinical screening um, and to be told my profile was being viewed, so I did write an anonymous profile about myself, non-identifying. There was pictures of me as a baby and as a toddler that they could see. I didn't really have any sort of say in who I was matched with. I was just informed that my profile had been viewed. Somebody had accepted me as their donor and was happy for me to go ahead with the treatment. So uh-huh. it started from there, really. And how long did treatment last? What what does that look like? Once all the consent forms and the screenings complete, the process actually is really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say no more than three weeks for my, okay. for my own personal journey. I went on tablets to begin with um, for a week and then started a course of injections, which I think everyone gets nervous about. But they're really, once the first one's over, you wonder what you was worried about. And then, yeah, within sort of 10 days, you you have regular monitoring scans to make sure that you're okay and everything is reacting as it should. And then egg collections normally within sort of two weeks of starting injections. Well, it was for my journeys Mm -hmm. and it's over with. That's it. What is it like going in for egg collection? Because there's normally a sedation or there's you know it's you're in for you know is it classed as day surgery Deb would it be classed as day it's surgery, day surgery yeah. yeah so it is treated like surgery you're kneel by mouth from the evening before well I was because my procedures were all first thing in the morning it's very timed as well from the last injection that you take to when you go in for a collection okay. it is within a certain time just to make sure that they get the best out of the collection Everyone was nervous, I think, about hospital procedures. I wasn't. Uh-huh. I just looked beyond that. I looked uh-huh. that, you know, the purpose of the journey was to help someone and we were getting at that final hurdle where, you know, they they knew that eggs were being collected. So the procedure itself was pretty straightforward. I had a cannula popped in the back of my hand, um, as you do in most surgery procedures. Mm-hmm. And it was the best sleep I'd ever had. <laughs> I didn't wake up groggy like you do sometimes from anaesthetic. It was just sedation. Didn't feel a thing throughout my sedation. I was completely out of it. Not any discomfort when you came round? I wouldn't say pain. I was probably a little bit tummy achy, um, more tired. I think I could have just loved a bit more sleep. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, I didn't have any side effects at all from any of my treatments. I didn't feel uncomfortable when I woke up. And again, the adrenaline was was there so high that I kind of overlooked it. And just proud of what what you'd achieved. Yeah, that's what a few people have said. Can people be paid to be an egg donor? They can't be paid, but they do have um, an element of compensation that is given to them up to £750. Um, so that can cover their train fares. So know, like expenses have, almost. Yeah. yeah. And is that paid by the clinic where the treatment takes place? If you come through MSJ, we would ensure that you get that, which we would obviously take from the intended parents we would invoice them for that if you go directly to a clinic without going via an agency the clinic would um, settle that with you yeah and it's generally done after egg collection has taken place but there is help there if you need it 
we can sort of dip from it throughout the journey if you need help with travel. Fine. Brilliant. Good to know. Thank you. Well, let's look at the other side, Deb, and let's be really transparent from a risk point of view with egg donation. Okay, so when a donor comes through um, to a clinic to look at going down the donor route, obviously the, the screening is really important to make sure that they're fit um, to be able to go through that journey. So not just their AMH, but lots of other screening too, to make sure that they're in the best physical and mental state to be able to embark on that sort of journey. There are risks, but we make sure that our donors that come through from the clinic levels are fully informed about all of the risks associated with egg donation. So once they start on that stimulation journey, they are powerful hormones. They are drugs that people can react to in very different ways. So when we screen them and we do those very first scans, we have a good idea of what's going on in that donor's ovaries. So we know what they're looking like. We know her AMH level. So has she got a high potential for overstimulating? So naturally, normally, just to give you a little bit of uh, medical background, when a woman produces an egg, we follow that egg for around about 14 days and the body naturally gives enough FSH, which is follicle-stimulating hormone that's produced by the pituitary gland, to allow just one of the antral follicles, so that cohort of follicles sitting in the ovaries, to become the dominant follicle and produce the egg. That's nature. That's what has to happen wow. naturally. <laughs> but what we do within the IVF world is that we mimic what's happening um, naturally. So we work alongside that reproductive cycle, but we give more of that FSH. So that's the injections that our donors will be taking every day. So we need to really titrate those uh, levels of drugs that we're giving to make sure that we're not going to overstimulate now, of course, every person that has a stimulation therapy, whether it's a donor or having treatment for yourself, you will overstimulate to a certain extent because you are doing more than that natural one. Mm -hmm. But as a clinic, we have the responsibility to ensure that we keep you safe, which is why, as Leanne alluded to earlier, that you have lots of monitoring scans. So we yeah. are keeping a close eye. So we will always be cautious at the beginning. If we know you've got a high AMH level, we know that you've got lots going on in your ovaries, we will titrate the drugs to give you a lower amount. But sometimes you might not respond. And that's why we do early scans to see, are you actually responding? Because there's no point you going through the whole stimulation process and you produce one or two eggs. The whole point is to make sure that we get that happy medium. Generally, I've seen people that have had 50 follicles and be absolutely fine. And I've seen people with 10 follicles and be really poorly. So it's how you respond to the drugs. And I'm trying not to make you scared of coming through and having the stimulation because the whole point of going through a licensed clinic is that you're going to be safe and you're going to be looked after throughout, hence the regular scans. So the main thing that we're trying to avoid is what we call ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And that's the bit where I've just spoken about where your body can be overactive and, and all of those small antral follicles are going to respond to the drugs that we've made. Um, the key is to keep you safe throughout of that. We don't want anybody to end up in hospital poorly as a result of that overstimulation. And as a guidance, our HFEA has very strict protocols on what we should be doing and how we respond if somebody does get poorly within that. First rule of medicine, I keep saying that, is to do no harm. And that is clearly what we should do. So we cannot go in and give you massive amounts of drugs at the very beginning, knowing that you're going to over respond. So we're really cautious with that. And then when you get to the point where we're ready to trigger you, ready for the egg collection itself, everyone will talk about on all the social media platforms, you talk about that trigger injection. That's the bit that's helping you ovulate. So in nature, when the egg becomes to a certain size, around about 14 days, you will naturally ovulate. So we want to bypass what your body's naturally doing because we will have stopped that nature bit. You then ovulate and we bring you back in Yes, it is very timed because we predict that that egg is going to ovulate around about 36 hours later. So it's really key that you take that trigger injection at the correct time. Don't just think, oh, I'll take it two hours later because that won't work. You need to take it exactly on time so that when we put the needle into your ovaries, that the eggs are going to nicely be released from those follicles. 
procedure itself is like any operation. You will be consented for that procedure. We make sure we go through all the risks. So there are risks such as bleeding, infection, all the routine risks of inserting a very fine needle through your vagina into those ovaries to take those eggs out. So, of course, there are risks, but we talk you through all of those bit by bit and you will sign the consent form before you go into surgery, as you would with any surgery. You're generally in the clinic for around about two hours. Most clinics will do a conscious sedation rather than a general anaesthetic. So you're fully asleep. You have no recollection of that procedure, but you can be woken up very quickly. So in general, the egg collection itself is about half an hour and then you're back into the recovery area. And in most cases, you would be in the clinic for around about two hours from when you walked in to when you walk out in the same state that you walked in. And most clinics now will always give you a prophylactic antibiotic because we have inserted a fine needle and we want to make sure that there's no infection afterwards. So in general, the risks are there, but these are routine procedures that are performed thousands of times throughout the world, not just the UK. And your clinic needs to be performing safely and they do so by helping you understand all the risks associated with it. What a very detailed and thorough (laughs) answer to that question, Debbie. Thank you. I wouldn't expect anything less. What typically is a number that's retrieved? 10 to 15. Okay. So that's what we're all aiming for. But of course, you're going to have the people that have lower egg numbers. But in general, our egg donors are always going to be on that higher end. And that's what you're looking for. And even if you've got somebody that's got 20 or 30 follicles, you're still looking to retrieve that 10 to 15 because if you overstimulate and you give too much medication, then you're putting the patients at risk. So that's our mark. That's our level that we're looking for. And and those 10 to 15, would they all be mature eggs? Not always. There's two different scenarios. So if you've got an altruistic donor that's just donating to a heterosexual couple, there isn't such a, a strong element of how many eggs am, am I going to get? Of course, everybody wants to get the, the most that they can to create as many embryos because it is a numbers game. And we try really hard to not make them focus too much on the numbers, but we get it. It is really important that yeah. you've got something. And if you're paying a lot of money, lot of money to recruit say, your Finance eggs. comes into this a lot, doesn't it? Because they're, so for some people, it's their one time yeah. and they can only afford one round. And to get the maximum amount in that round is really important. But then it's, from a same-sex couple, there's a difference then. And especially if you've got two people donating yeah. sperm. So if, if we talk, that, so in the hetero, you don't have that pressure. Mm-hmm. But when you've got um, a same-sex male couple that both want to create embryos using the same egg donor, then yes, you do have a lot of pressure. And most clinics would have a cutoff of 12 eggs in order to be able to give the two guys six eggs each. And that gives you a reasonable chance of creating around about three to four embryos each. Um, Because it is numbers, not every egg that you retrieve is going to be mature. And you can't tell that from an ultrasound scan. You can't tell that from uh, the size of the follicle. You could have 20 follicles around about 18 millimetres and you get 10 eggs. So, that you know, it, as a clinician, it's very difficult to predict. You know that you've got high level of AMH. You know you've got lots of stock in the ovaries, but that doesn't always process down to... And we've had lots of shocks in the past where we think we've gone in with around about 20 follicles and we get five good eggs. So sometimes that, but again, that's managing all of our patients' expectations, the donors and the intended parents Mm -hmm. or recipients to make sure that there is always a chance that we might not get. I always say as well, it's not always about numbers. It is about quality. If you get five good quality eggs that are all capable of um, fertilising, then you've got five nice embryos on way. Um, But you could have 20 and half of them are immature. Quality might not be there. So it is quality versus quantity. And and I say this to intended parents a lot, you know, everyone, it is a numbers game. They're all so focused on numbers at the start and I absolutely get that because we were there. We absolutely... And Tallulah's donor produced four eggs, but we were told that all four would be really good quality and all four became 
blastocysts. Yeah. So, that's so, so we know she pr- didn't produce very many, but the quality was really high. Yeah. So but but what a lot of intended parents are looking at is like they they're disappointed when they don't get the right amount. And yeah. And what I would say is is like we we always know that people want to have enough embryos so that they can facilitate you know journey and and unsuccessful transfers and siblings. We understand all of that, but it's about always getting a balance, isn't it? It's about you don't need twenty embryos, but you you don't need one. You need you need a good balance to make sure that you can you know you you kind of future proof it and it's how there's no correlation debbie is there correct me if i'm wrong here between number of eggs there's no data that says if you get x amount of eggs you're going to get x amount of embryos oh absolutely not (laughs) and i think that's how big his job is how do you manage expectation there you have to manage that because people coming through journeys using donation if they're heterosexual they've been on a journey already yeah and they have such high expectations that this donor is going to produce this massive cohort of eggs for them yeah. that they were never able to do themselves. Sure, yeah. And it comes as such a shock when they end up with three or four eggs. But if they've got three or four good quality eggs, then yeah. they are in a much better position than they were with their own journeys. I think it's important not to put pressure on the donor as well sometimes. Because yeah. we're all, yeah. we go into it wanting the best, but... You can follow the instructions from the clinic religiously with timings of injections, dosage, do absolutely everything they've guided you to do, but you still may only get a certain amount of eggs. It doesn't mean yeah. that. And I suppose that can be quite difficult for a donor if, if intended parents are so excited, but then they're disappointed with the number, even though this donor's gone through everything. And it's that no, responsibility it is. It? And, and we know how grueling you know, donation is from uh, all of the meds and to get to the point of going through the procedure and then to come out of it and you don't get the egg numbers. That must be really difficult for donors to take on board when they're, they're so hopeful that, they're, that you know, the, the IPs are going to be really happy with what. And what they've had to go through as well, yeah, you know, it's definitely. it's 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 a grueling process. Were you ever told your outcome from uh, from what those from your numbers were? Do they ever tell you? Yes, um, they asked me when I was going through treatment if I wanted to know whether it worked. So, out of the six cycles that I did, there are two boys and a girl born. Wow, amazing! Oh, that's so lovely. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> well done, you. Reproduction in itself is a complete and utter minefield. Yeah. Every stage from day one of the female reproductive cycle to creating an egg, to watching the embryo journey, to then implantation, to then pregnancy test, to then clinical viable pregnancy scan is, wow, such a journey. And managing expectations for all the different Mm -hmm. people that come into that journey is huge and a huge responsibility and we have to make sure that we get that right. So, you know, MSJ, you're talking about education. That is really key that we make sure that everyone is educated throughout the whole process so that they don't have those horrible times. And, you know, if I think if one thing that the listener gets from this podcast particularly is a better understanding of the timeframes and the potential outcomes or the, the lack of outcomes and the options. You know, for me, if, the, if those are much more clearer, because I often speak to a lot of intended parents, and I'm sure you speak to a lot of donors, where they have no comprehension about what what they're about to embark on and how it's going to be impacted and the potential outcomes. I think everyone assumes that just because they're getting using donor regs, they're using a good clinic, it's all going to be hunky-dory. Well, it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, it's all about science and there's lots of about genetic compatibility all of the things associated with it nothing's for certain is it sometimes when you're managing those calls you know it could be that you've you've got beautiful legs you've got great sperm and no fertilization and that is you know unexplained fertility between eggs and sperm is around 65 percent of the fertility population and that can happen in donation too and we need to make sure that all the recipients of that treatment cycle understand that without being too negative because no, sure. it is a really positive thing. It is, it is an amazing, amazing side to what we can do. But I think people just need to be realistic. Yeah. And I'm hoping that this podcast will educate people on the different dynamics of the whole donation process and the, you know, the science involved in it and how there's no certainty. So finally, before we close then, just uh, I'd like some thoughts from each of you with regards to the HFEA wanting to look at opening that register earlier. Debbie's smirking. So I'm going to go to Debbie first and then I'm going to go to Leanne. What's your thoughts on it, Debbie? So I, as I've said right at the beginning, that I've been around for a little while in fertility. So I was there in 2005 when I sat in front of donors and reassured them that 
everything would be absolutely fine in 2023 and that they wouldn't have offspring from their donation knocking on their door. And the reality of it in 2023 is that that's not 100% happening. We're, we're in a stage at the minute where the HFEA does not have the massive resources to deal with the whole influx of what could happen over the next couple of years and the the um, inquiries that might come in. So they're working really hard with us in the sector, um, with the Donor Conception Network, Fertility Network UK, anyone that can source and give information to those people born as a result of donation or indeed the donors that actually donated to make sure that they've all got the right amount of support to deal with what's going to happen. Should they be opening the donor register earlier? And I'm sure you're alluding to it at age 16. Yeah. Potentially, yes, because we do have very informed young people these days. The schools now do give so much more information that perhaps they are ready to understand and accept what has happened and how their their being came about. But that needs to be down to the parents of that child and make sure that they have good understanding because the last thing you want to do is to affect any uh, mental health by informing them at too young an age because we all know that we have some very grown-up 16-year-olds and some very immature 16-year-olds. You need to make sure that you get the balance right. Mm-hmm. We've already, I've already had a little while ago um, a recipient who... Um, had donation at the clinic I worked at and rang me to say, my son is going to be 18 in November. What do I tell him? We have never told him anything. And wow. so that was that was really intriguing. And she said, I'm scared that, you know, that something's going to come out. And, and I said, look, nobody's going to say that you have to tell your child that they were born as a yeah. result of donation. It is really personal. But the encouragement now is that you should tell yeah. um, so that it, we are we can all be transparent. And, you know, Leanne talked about earlier, and it, it's, it's lovely hearing from a donor perspective, you know, that she wanted to know where her eggs are gone. She wanted to be a part of that. And that's really interesting and lovely going forward that we, we can give that sort of information. But just make sure it's right for the right young people. Make sure that they're age related and they they can accept that information. And can donors change their consent to allow people to contact them earlier? They can. Um, so you would need to contact the donor register people, which is, is at the Hewitt Centre in Liverpool currently. It may change in the next year or so, but currently the Hewitt Centre is is managing that register. So you can, if you did donate before and you want to now lift your donor anonymity then you can contact them and ask them to do so for you fine thank you very much and leanne how does that feel as a donor how how do you feel about that potential i'm okay with it um because it was always made very clear to me that no matter when or if anybody knocks on my door you are not financially or legally responsible for that person and that sits okay with me and actually like I mentioned earlier, my curiosity isn't necessarily of that of the child. It's of the intended parents. So I'm a great believer in choice. And like Debbie said, I think it's how they educate their child and when is the right time to tell them if it is. But I think it's nice for them to be able to have that choice yeah, if sure. they wish to sure. approach me earlier. But I also think that if someone wants to know who you are, then what's what's wrong with that? And I think if if helping them understand their genetic identity may actually really help them. When I donated, it wasn't a case of if it ever happens. It's a case of when they are of that age, they can. Yeah. Mm. They can approach you. They can find you. So for me, I didn't go into it worried about that. I think it's wrong to go into it. That like anonymity is there for a reason, but it's only anonymous at the time of donation. Sure. Mm. When I did mine, it's not anonymous forever. So you you going into it for the wrong reasons if you're expecting that to be there Total forever. Anonymity. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose if you've been honest, open and honest with your children and your f- support network, your family, then if someone does come knocking at that, they're already kind of prepared that that is a possibility and could happen. Yeah. And my children have known right through with all my cycles. They help me do the injections and think it's lovely. So, yeah. Thankfully, we live in a much, much more transparent, open world today than we did even only 25 years ago. 
you know, when first started out in fertility, you had clinics that, that even changed the name of the clinic. So you couldn't be seen to be going into a fertility clinic. Wow. We're much, we're much <laughs> further on now. And mm. we want to be open and transparent. We want people to know about their family makeup. It's not as hush-hush anymore. No, and, and, it should, and it shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? Leanne, remind us where this listener can get in contact with you or My Surrogacy Journey. Give us a reminder of the details. So they can go on the website at www.mysurrogacyjourney.com or they can email me at leanne at mysurrogacyjourney.com um, and I can help whenever they need it. Super. Thank you very much, ladies. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. This has been really interesting. Thank you very much. Really jam-packed full yes. of information there. So it's nice. kind of... You know, a lot to take on. So thank, thank you. you very much, both of you. Thank you. Interesting. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Wow. Again, I am always not surprised because we've, we've got, we're on season three now. We've done some great podcasts, but the content that comes out and the things that I'm still learning Having been in this space for, for so long, it's, it always surprises me. I love it. It does. And remember that the information that you get on this podcast, there's always a lot more to it. We give you some flavours, we give you some hints, some of the things that you need to know, but there's always more. So, you know, you can speak to your My Surrogacy Journey coordinator to help you understand it. And I think for us, choosing your donor is often something that you do really early on in your journey. And it's a really critical part. And we didn't really talk about the impact of the choices that you make with donation, but it does impact you and your future children for the rest of their lives. So it's a really massive part of the journey. I think sometimes people underestimate the impact of the choices they make when choosing a donor. And you will, you spell that out to people really early on, um, which which I find really interesting. The whole, you know, what does your complete family building look like? How many children would you like? And, and you're right, you know, this is a conversation that you are going to have with your little humans in the future. And you don't want to have rushed a decision. You, you you want to take it really seriously. You do want to consider all of the, the factors behind picking a donor. Um, so I always, you know, if you're, you know, if you're listening now today and you're having that consultation with Wes or any of our team, it's so right really take your time in, in making that donor decision because it's really, really important. You're making probably one of the biggest decisions you will make in your life yeah. by choosing a donor. Totally. And I think sometimes people underestimate the magnitude of that decision. Yeah, agreed. So don't forget, if you need your podcast fix, we're back every Monday, proudly sponsored by Manchester Fertility, the UK's leading specialist offering IUI, ICSI and IVF treatments awarded Best Fertility Clinic in the northwest of England. If you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey, then head over to our website, which is mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on Instagram at official mysurrogacyjourney. If you like this episode, then please subscribe to the series and we will have another episode coming out next week. Thank you for listening. We have been your My Surrogacy Journey podcast host. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.